So often we are very silent when it comes to the conversation about death. Often it's not until we lose a loved one or ourselves find ourselves at a funeral home that we begin to contemplate death. Now, truly, that's not true of all of us. Some of us maybe contemplate it more than others because of an underlining health condition or because of age. I'm sure, though, that regardless, there are seasons of our life where we have thought less and less and less about the fact that one day we will die. One day our life will come to an end. We're often told that we are being morbid or depressing if we talk about death or have conversations with our family members about our will or what we'd like done with our bodies after we die. But Christians historically have looked at death very differently differently than the world around them. Christians uniquely have a perspective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ where we see death with hope, not with fear. Have you ever noticed when you're traveling around at maybe an old kind of country church? Something about that church is very unique. Maybe if you're driving through the the back roads of Maryland or Virginia and some of these old historic Baptist churches, Christian Protestant churches. Something very unique about those churches. And that is there's cemeteries right at the front door. Why is that? Why is it that the cemeteries, these graveyards, are right outside the front door of the church? Doesn't that seem a little weird, a little morbid? Why, why all this talk and thinking about death? Because it was a constant reminder, these congregations, of the hope of the resurrection. If you ever would go to these tombstones and look at them, many of them, particularly in the early colonial days and in England, there would be on these gravestones a phrase, died in hope of the resurrection. Died in hope of the resurrection. You see, Christians don't die in fear, but rather in hope. If you're familiar with John Bunyan's work, The Pilgrim's Progress, I just encourage you this morning, if you've never read that book, read it. There's some available in modern day English, so let me just encourage you, just go to Amazon, you get that, read it. And what John Bunyan does in this book is it's an allegory of the Christian life. And the the primary character is Christian. Now, Bunyan is writing this from prison to his congregation. And Bunyan is pastorally teaching his church in the midst of a high mortality rate. People were dying regularly. At the end of the book, as the main character, Christian, and his friend, Hopeful, make their journey through death. And finally arrive at the, at the celestial city. Bunyan in this has his main character afraid of death. And hopeful encouraging him to continue to fight until the end. In other words, Bunyan was trying to teach the church that as Christians we must fight even unto death to remain hopeful. That God is faithful to his promises. This morning, I have a question I want you to think about as we consider these last three chapters. Do you long for the kingdom of God to come? So often we know the Lord's prayer, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Jesus taught his disciples to have a a, a longing in their hearts. But I fear so often in our lives what we we long for things in this world far more than we long for, for his kingdom to come. I remember years ago, shocked by a conversation, uh, speaking with Christians when they responded by saying, oh, I don't want Jesus to come yet. I've got so many things to do in life. Friend, maybe that's you this morning. You don't want Jesus to ruin your party. You've got a lot of plans left for your, your life. But as Christians, we should have a, a sense of longing for God's promises to be filled in his kingdom to come. Now, as we consider Genesis 48 this morning, before we jump into the text, I'm not going to read 48 to 50. I trust you've done that before you've came, but I will highlight some things throughout. I want to remind you, though, of the larger context of the book of Genesis. God had promised Abraham. Remember Abraham? We, 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 we studied Abraham months ago. Before there was a coronavirus, we were, we were studying, uh, studying the life of Abraham. And God came to Abraham and he said to him, I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to give you land. And, and this land was the land of Canaan. And he says, this, this land, your, your ancestors are going to fill this land. As, as many as the sand on the seashore, that this land is going to be, be littered with little Abramites running around serving me. But the problem was, in the life of Abraham, he never possessed the the promised land. Well, his son Isaac would obviously live after him and grow, and then Isaac's son Jacob, and then Jacob's 12 sons. But none of them would ever actually possess the promised land, all by one small portion of it. When Abraham's wife died... He went to the Canaanite people and he says, I want to buy a piece of land. The Canaanite said to him, hey, Abraham, look, you're a cool man. You're a righteous dude. You, you, we see God's hand is on your life. But, so we're going to give you this land as a gift, this little plot of land so you can bury your wife. Abraham said, no, no, no. I, I want to buy this land because I want to stake my flag here. You see, when Abraham buried his wife. He was, he was declaring that he believed the promises of God by, by burying his wife. That one day his ancestors would surround this, this gravesite, this land, and possess it. Well, in his son's life, in Isaac's life, yet again, Isaac's bury, Isaac buries his father Abraham in the same tomb. Then he himself and his wife are buried in this tomb, still not possessing any of the property in all the land in Canaan except for this burial plot. Well, as time would go on, Jacob himself, the great-grandson of Abraham, would not possess the land. The grandson, rather, of Abraham would not possess the land. And as we learned last week, Jacob has now left town. He's left the promised land and he's relocated down to Egypt. And as Moses is rounding up and and kind of tying up the loose ends here, we find yet again that the promises of God have yet to be fulfilled. God's promise of a great nation, there are only 70 people, is yet to be fulfilled. And the promise of land is yet to be fulfilled. And yet we see the patriarch die. And so if you have your Bibles open this morning, I want to read just a section here in chapter 49, which is really the key unifying passage in all of this 
last section. Death reigns over chapters 49 through 50. The whole section is unified around the death of Jacob. So there in chapter 49, in verse 29, 49, 29. Then Jacob commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Mechpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. The point of chapters 48 through 50 is summarized in this short sentence. Because God is sovereign and faithful, his people can die in hope that he will fulfill his promise of land. Now, you might think this morning, hey, you know, Pastor, I know my Bible and there's no promise of land for us Christians. Yes, there is. As I hope to demonstrate to you this morning that what God promised to the patriarchs was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus expands the promise when he says, today you shall be with me in paradise. But when he says that when I come again, you will possess the whole earth. God promises us this morning that he is faithful to fulfill. And so we can die in hope. We can live in hope this morning. We can be comforted by the truth that God is faithful to his promise to provide us the promised land. This new heaven and new earth. And so this morning, what I want us to do is sort of walk through the narrative. I want to point out a number of things since throughout these scenes that are sort of Uh, laid out before us and then kind of show how this fits within a Christian context as you as we round up now as you've read I hope chapters 48 through 50 you might come to the conclusion that this is the most anticlimactic portion of all of Genesis you might find yourself after this wonderful climax of Joseph after all these years 20 years revealing his identity to his brothers and and this wonderful work that God was doing in his life to preserve all these people you come to chapters 48 49 and 50 and it's it's, it's just like ah oh, oh my goodness not much happening here it just seems as Moses is just sort of tying up loose ends if you will Oh, but God was doing something wonderful. He, even here in these final uh, chapters, as he was teaching his people, again, help put your mind in the first reader. As the Israelites are, are making their way out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt, on their way to the promised land, how would that have rang in their ear? That promise. Look, listen, guys, I want you to hear it, he says. Moses says, I want you to hear God was faithful. Jacob died in hope that God would give us this land, this land that we're heading towards. Or imagine you're an Israelite in captivity in Babylon and you hear that God had promised land to your forefathers. Or you're standing there where Ezra is reading from the law that day 
and you hear God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It would have brought you comfort and hope as you heard what God is revealing in these chapters. Well, these chapters are divided into four, really seven scenes, and we're not going to, you know, you hear, this is, there's not seven points to this sermon, all right? So don't freak out. It's all right. Um, there are seven scenes that make up these final chapters, and I want us to sort of walk through each of these scenes together. So if you have your Bibles open, I think it'll be helpful for me just to point out the scenes to you very quickly, and then we'll go back through and look at them, and then we'll make some, some draw some conclusions. Well, as we are told there in verse 1 that J Joseph hears that his father is about to die. So this very first scene is sort of a response to that. Jacob blessing Ephraim and Manasseh and, and adopting them as his own. So chapter 48 is really just one whole scene of Jacob blessing the two sons that were born to Joseph while he lived in Egypt. The second scene takes up there in chapter 49 with Jacob blessing his sons and then dying. Sort of, we just read that concluding. So he blesses each of his 12 sons and those blessings correspond to who they are and they were prophetic in that they were declaring what they would be. The third scene is there beginning in chapter 50 where Jacob is embalmed and mourned by his people. In scene four, we're told that Pharaoh is grants Jacob's family permission to go back to Canaan and, and bury him in that cave that he asked to be buried in. The fifth scene is Jacob's burial in the family grave. There in chapter 50, verses 7 through 14, they make their way and it's a big celebration. It's, a, it's really a, a burial fit for a king. In scene 6, after the burial service, uh, they all have that you know little repast like y'all like to do, a family meal. And at that family meal, after burying Jacob, the brothers are freaked out. They're afraid that, that Joseph is going to seek retribution. And jo Joseph assures them, brothers, I forgive you. I forgive you. And the final scene in the book of Genesis ends with Joseph's last deeds and words, where we're told that Joseph lived to 110 years and then dies and is buried there in Egypt. Well, as we go through these scenes, I want to notice a couple of things throughout the text. So if you have your Bibles open back to chapter 48, we're told that Jacob blesses Ephraim and Manasseh and adopts them as his own children. You'll be reminded that Reuben and Simeon and Levi, as you'll see in a moment in chapter 49, are kind of disinherited, if you will, a bit. Uh, they aren't blessed, but rather cursed. And so Jacob adopts the two sons of Joseph, and they'll have a prominent place in the nation of Israel. In the northern kingdom, they will have a prominent place in the years to come when they settle into the promised land. And God here, through prophetic words of Jacob, uh, foretell what is going to happen. We're told there in verse 1 that Joseph uh, is alerted to Jacob's death, and therefore he takes his sons to get that blessing. Imagine that Jacob was the man right, who lived his life in search of blessings. This is all he wanted. It's all he ever wanted was blessings. He wanted the blessings of his father. Bless me, bless me. And we see here in his final days, him blessing those around him because he had been blessed by God. If you look there in verses uh, three and four, 
Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples and will give you this land to your offspring after you as an everlasting possession. In the blessings of Ephraim and Manasseh, he's confirming the promises of God upon these two children. What will prove true in the years later that these children would possess the promised land and have a significant portion in it. Well, as the story goes on, we're told of the blessing. So there in verses 15 through 16, this is the blessing. And then we're told in response, uh, something, a theme that sort of has come up throughout the book of Genesis. That is the younger being blessed greater than the older. In this society, it would have been natural for the firstborn to receive the blessing. And as we learn from Jacob's own life, where he stole the blessing from his brother Esau, we are told here that Jacob blesses Joseph's younger son instead of his older son. We're told that God was still working in a in a sort of a reverse way, an unexpected way. God's people needed not try to tempt God in saying, oh, God follows this particular pattern, but rather see that God's ways are not their ways. And so in verses 17 through 19, we were told that Joseph was displeased with his father. But in the end, Jacob submitted himself to God's purposes in life. Well, as this scene closes in blessing these two sons, uh, Jacob invites his whole family over and he says, listen, 12 sons, I want to bless you. And so in the second scene in chapter 49, he begins to bless each of his sons. Reuben, as I said, and Simeon and Levi um, aren't really blessed. You'll be reminded why Reuben uh, had an affair uh, with Jacob's wife, and therefore that's why he is passed over. Simeon and Levi, because of the slaughter at Shechem, are passed over. And what I want you to look at very briefly, there is in verses 8 through 10. We are told that Judah would become the one who would lead the family. Judah would be the one whom God would use to bring about. And of course, as, as history would tell, it would be through the tribe of Judah that King David would rise to power and become the, the great pinnacle king and his son Solomon, an even greater king. Of course, as we heard through Isaiah chapter 11, God promised through uh, this section that it would be the Messiah would come, the, the king, and he would rule. And so if you look here at verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. It wouldn't be until Jesus Christ came that there would be a fulfillment of these promises to Judah and his descendants. Well, as we go on, we see uh, each of the brothers receiving blessings from their father. And notice here at the end, Joseph in verse 22, receiving probably the best blessing of all. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His his branches run over the wall. The the archers bitterly attack him, shoot at him and harass him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His, His arms were made agile by the hands of the almighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your fathers who will help you. By almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of deep 
Blessings of the breast and of the womb. He goes on to say, now, something we missed earlier in chapter 48 is that Jacob basically sets aside a special piece of land that he had won in a battle. And he gives it to Joseph, sort of an extra blessing upon the life of Joseph, because Joseph was the instrument God used to save the nation of Israel. Well, as I said, this scene of blessing reminds us that, as we heard so helpfully, a theme that we had heard throughout, that though these men were broken and sinful, God still used them. God wasn't done with the nation of Israel. I mean, every one of these guys fell short of of God's glory, yet God still used this nation to bring about his blessing. It's a reminder that God uses broken men and women to advance his work in everyday life. Was Jacob concludes blessing his sons, we come then to scene three where Jacob is embalmed and mourned. We're told that there in, in chapter, um, at the end there in chapter 50, that, that Joseph obeys his father. And he embalms him and he prepares him. It's a 40-day process. And eventually, in preparation for them relocating and moving his body to the cave there in, in in the promised land. God was at work through them. Jacob gets the grants permission, or rather Pharaoh grants permission from Jacob and, and goes and buries. And I want you to just look here for just a moment uh, there at the burial process in verses 7 through 14. If your Bible's open, just look here. Again, we're just kind of moving fast, I know. Verse 7, so Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of the household, the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the households of Joseph, his brothers, his father's household. Only their children and their flocks were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him chariots and horsemen, the great company, when they came to the threshing floor of Adat, which is beyond the Jordan. They lamented there, a very great lament, grieving lamentations and mourning for their father seven days. It was so much, so big, that so much pomp and circumstance surrounding it that the Canaanites were like, whoa, what is this? A king was being buried in their land. It was a funeral fit for only a king. It was a celebration only fit for one of the great leaders, Jacob himself, the bumbling, fumbling fool, was honored in his death as an instrument of God's grace. Well, as I said earlier, Joseph's brothers respond in a bit of fear and trepidation that now that their father is dead, that somehow Joseph will seek retribution. And they come and they beg him, please forgive us. So if you look there at verse 19, you see Joseph's response. He says, do not be afraid, for I am not in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me. I want to say something. Joseph never whitewashes their sin. He never says, it's okay. He never says, you know, what you did to me wasn't a big deal. He says it was evil. It was wicked. It was vile. It was transgression against a holy God, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. 
Joseph in this way is, is somewhat of a picture of Christ in that he offers forgiveness, though it's undeserved forgiveness, and he provides for his family and his brothers. Well, the scene, the final scene concludes there in verse seven or, or verse 22, the that seventh scene and kind of rounding up. We're told that Joseph dies. You notice there in verse 24, he asks, he says to his brothers now, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and will carry you up, carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and put him in a coffin in Egypt. Of course, as time would tell, 400 years later, God's people would leave Egypt after being enslaved. And you know what they had with them? They had Joseph. They carried his bones out of the land of Egypt. You notice what he promised them. He says, God will bring you up just as God had promised to their father, Jacob. Look, I'm going to be with you. I'll take you down and I'll bring you up. We can trace throughout Genesis and the rest of scripture this theme of God's people having hope in the fulfillment of the promised land. In the beginning of the book of Genesis God created the heavens and the earth. And he created people, Adam and Eve. He created a literal place where they lived, the Garden of Eden. A place where Adam would function as a priest and worship God through the temple of the garden where he would meet, where God would meet, where God would dwell with his people, where God would live and walk among the Garden of Eden was a fruitful land. It was paradise. It was the promised land. But paradise was lost in Genesis chapter 3. And Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. They, weren't, they were cast out of the land where they would meet with God. Where God's presence would be felt and known. Because Adam and Eve rebelled against God's good rule... And decided to go life their own way. God said I can't live with you. And he put two angels guarding the way. To the promised paradise. As the story of Genesis unfolded we saw. That humanity would seek to regain. This lost land. Through their own way. In Genesis chapter 11. In the tower of Babel. Man seeks to have a relationship with God their own way rather than his way. Ultimately, God wouldn't allow it. God would punish humanity and send a great flood and start over. And this time, rather than blessing all of the nations, God would choose one person, Abraham, and promise him a land, a place where he would meet with him. A place where God again would restore his presence among his people. And, and you know what? Abraham's grandson, Jacob, every time he left the promised land and came back, you know what he was met with? Angels. Abraham's nephew, Lot, would say about the promised land that it was watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. 
Moses wants us to understand that the promised land was to be a place where God's people would yet again meet with him. Where God would be their God and he, they would be his people. But as I said earlier, the patriarchs never possessed the promised land. And so the hope of land passed from one generation to the next. So much so that they began to kind of question, ah, is this really going to happen? As Jacob would say to Joseph, Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Jacob, even in his death, held on to the hope that the promised land that one day Joseph would return to the promised land and dwell there and live there. Yet Joseph died, as we just read, without ever making it back to the promised land. That land never became Joseph's, but it did become his son's. The hope of the promised land would continue through the time of Moses. And even later in the life of Israel in the Exodus, when they were banished from the land because of their sin. As we heard last week, Hebrews 11 reminds us that all these, that is all the patriarchs, all, that all these stories, that all these people we've read, real human beings, heard God's promises but were never fulfilled. Hebrews 11 says that all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. In the New Testament, the hope of land shifts from a geographic land, the land of Canaan, which is real and in the Middle East today, to a new heaven and a new earth. Such that Peter will say this in 2 Peter 3.12, Since all these things are true, or rather all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? In other words, he says, this, this physical world that you see right now before your eyes, church, is going to be dissolved. And a new heaven and a new earth is coming. Peter would go on to say that we are waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will be melted as they burn. But according to God's promise, we are waiting a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Similarly, in Revelation chapter 21, John, seeing a glimpse of this new heaven and new earth, says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Jesus, when he was teaching his disciples about the new heaven and new earth, he said to them, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, he said on the Sermon on the Mount. Why? For they shall inherit the earth. Jesus expands the promise land to not be a, a little slither of land in the Middle East, but rather to be the whole earth. Not the earth as we know it today, but a new earth, as Peter says, where righteousness dwells. Remember what Jesus told the criminal on the cross. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. And the ascended Lord promised to everyone who conquers, I will give to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. 
what was lost in the Garden of Eden and what was partially glimpsed and restored through the patriarchs ultimately finds fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The promised land in Canaan was to Israel only a deposit, a guarantee of what God would do through Jesus Christ. Such that the promises weren't merely to be the nation of Israel, but that the whole world would be blessed. And so if you looked at your Bible this morning, and you looked at the very beginning, and the very first words, and you look at the very last words, there's a promised land. God gives a promised land from beginning to end. A paradise that, is, that will be restored. Not in heaven, but on earth. A place where God will meet with us here, face to face, as one meets with a friend. God will dwell with man again. Sidney Gradernus, commenting on these chapters, says this. Jacob's large funeral procession, with the Egyptian officials and all of the the pomp and circumstance heading for the promised land foreshadows the day when Jesus returns and ushers in the new heaven and new earth. When Jesus comes again, he's bringing paradise to earth. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation will eat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the children of God. This is what Jesus promised through the book of Revelation. And friend, let me just encourage you now that you've studied Genesis, read Revelation in light of Genesis, and I guarantee you, you see the same picture. This is what Jesus promised the centurion, the, the Gentile. He says to them, when Jesus heard of the centurion's faith, he was marveled and said, truly I say to you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline with who? With Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, I, I give you these verses to, to, to argue the point that the promises to the patriarchs are the promises to us this morning in Christ. That Jesus Christ fulfills these promises in his first and second coming. Again, John in Revelation chapter 22 gets a, gets a sort of a glimpse of the new heaven and new earth. And I want you to listen with your Genesis reading ears on this morning. Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of or the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life. Remember? In the Garden of Eden, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. No longer a Genesis 3 curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more and the sun will not need a lamp for the Lord will be the light and they will reign forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, God is sovereign and he is faithful. John has already seen it. 
God's promises will be fulfilled. God will fulfill his promise to us in ushering in the promised land of the new heaven and the new earth. He doesn't only have the power to decree and to rule the universe, but our God has the power to fulfill his word. Because God is sovereign and and because God is faithful, we as his people can die in hope of the resurrection. We, We don't need to be afraid of death. We don't need to fear this fallen world. But in hope, believe God will one day, when Jesus returns, Graves will bust open and the dead in Christ will rise. Brothers and sisters, find comfort in the truth this morning. That God will fulfill his promise. He will. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. Maybe not for another thousand years. Whatever it may be, God will one day fulfill his word. May you and I have a sense of longing for this kingdom to come. On earth as it is in heaven. May we long for Jesus to return. May we say with hearts uplifted. Come Lord Jesus come. Let's pray. Father we do pray this morning that you would send your son. Come Lord Jesus we pray. As we are about to feast. Upon the blood and body of Christ. We're reminded of our savior's words that he would not eat this. Again, until one day we all sit around the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the promised land, in that new heaven and new earth. We long for you to come, Lord. Come quickly, we pray.